Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Ileana Maisonette takes us on a culinary journey through Puerto Rico and its diaspora. 
She reveals the secrets to her guava barbecue sauce, delicious desserts, and the very best rice. I don't want to seem crazy, but some people have said it depends on how you talk to the rice. If you talk to your rice like you talk to your plant. like Wait, I... wait, wait, wait. Okay, we're going <laughs> to stop you there. So you're talking to your rice and that changes how you cook it? Of course. <laughs> I'm like, we're going to do good. We're going to do great. You're going to be a winner. <laughs> That's coming up later in the show. First up, it's my interview with New York Times food correspondent Kim Severson about salvage grocery stores. Her article is called Dented, Dated, Discontinued. At the Salvage Grocery, it's called a deal. Kim Severson, it's been much too long. How are you? I'm great. Much too long. I agree. How are you? I'm good. Um, So today we're talking about stores with names like Sharpshooter, The Dented Can, Stretch a Buck. It's pretty interesting what's going on in the supermarket business. Yeah, you know, stores are always, supermarkets, they're always this great barometer of where we are nationally. Right. And uh, I think the salvage store, which is what you're talking about here, um, are getting a little bit of a, uh, some new attention. People who maybe have never thought about different ways to stretch their food dollar are discovering the secret world of uh, what they call, food retailers call them unsellables. So it's this amazing place where all the food that you know, we're not going to end up on your traditional grocery store shelf goes and get marked down like crazy. So this is different than the dollar store in terms, this is all food and supermarket related? Uh, Yeah, dollar stores and even, you know, the German import Aldi are, they're so big. I mean, dollar stores have something like 18,000 stores Mm -hmm. now. So they are, are big chains that operate with a supply chain, a distribution and a purchasing system that are much more like you know, Kroger or Publix or, uh, or Whole Foods. The salvage stores are places that um, kind of have a secret deal with food manufacturers. So uh, if, say, a cream cheese manufacturer has decided to change their packaging from 10 ounces to 8 ounces and still sell for the same price, they don't want those 10-ounce packages out in regular circulation. Or maybe the guy with the forklift just screwed up, you know, uh, two cases of butter and rip the side of one of them, those have to go somewhere to get sold, right? So they're not going to be going on the shelf at an Aldi, but they will go into the secondary market, as they call it, which is these salvage stores. So a lot of these products, is it about expired dates or food that's been on this, on the shelf too long? Is that part of what's going on here? Uh, yeah, the the... Expiration dates are a funny thing in this country, uh, and when something gets close to that date, uh, manufacturers don't like to have it on the shelves. Shoppers will be like, oh, says it's best by this date. I don't want to buy it a day after. But that leaves a ton of really good food out there that is perfectly edible. Uh, it may not be at its exact peak, certainly with dairy and things like that, but you know, as a box of Rice Krispies that's three weeks past its best by date, going to be really that different? It's not. But those sell-by dates turn into the bread and butter for for salvage stores. So there's another category of items in these stores, uh, new products that don't sell. You, I think you mentioned Hostess Snowball flavored coffee pods. So this is where new product innovations that don't sell, as you say, you know, go to die. They, they go to get sold off. This is one of my favorite parts about salvage stores because I'm um, 
such a student of food marketing and, and the ways in which food marketers try to get us to buy things. So the cereal aisle in particular is really interesting. There could be, you know, rows and rows of, uh, there was a, a Shaquille O'Neal cereal that had little cinnamon flavored round basketballs as kind of the, the thing. Uh, there were plenty and plenty of those uh, family size boxes available for less than $2. So you kind of see what what went and what didn't go. Seasonal stuff, of course, is big. You can find, and I don't know why you would want lavender peeps four months after Easter, but you know, you might. might. They were very cheap. That sense of discovery is great. The treasure hunt nature of it, I love. Right. That's that's perfectly describes it. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Yeah, it's kind of fun, you know, it's kind of fun. So t- take us through, you walk in the door, what kind of pricing do you see? I assume some cases you're getting, you know, 80% off, which you might see in a regular supermarket. I mean, just take us on a little tour here. Sure. You know, the thing to realize is that not all salvage stores are created equal. However, um, if you stick with it, there's some really great and very um, delicious deals to be had. I talked to a woman who goes to one store in North Carolina, and she found a perfectly whole wheel of Romano cheese from Italy, stamped, lovely, perfect. Uh, and uh, she thought it was about $12 for a wheel of cheese that probably would have cost, you know, 10 times that. Right. And depending on price sensitivity, you can find terrific deals. I I have a, a kid who happens to like this brand of water called Liquid Death because they are young, <laughs> but it makes them feel cool and it's ridiculous. And I don't buy it because it's expensive and dumb. However, I found a case of 12 of those 16-ounce cans for about $5. (laughs) So during my reporting, brought home my case of liquid death and was an instant hero with my high school freshman for about five minutes. I was going to say that'll happen again in about three years. Um, (laughs) So at the height of the COVID pandemic, I would assume uh, these stores probably did really well, right? Uh, they did. In fact, I talked to one guy whose entire business uh, survived because he happened to stumble on a couple of truckloads full of toilet paper uh, <laughs> when the toilet paper shortage was happening. But what I found really interesting is when the pandemic hit, stadiums, cruise ships, airlines, places that had a lot of food in stock and in the freezers and ready to go, didn't have anywhere to sell that food, right? Mm. Uh, and this is where the salvage grocery business came to the rescue. So, you know, vats of orange juice that were ready to be loaded onto the cruise ship lines, frozen meals from airlines. So what's particularly interesting then about secondary market salvage stores, uh, you really see all the different channels in which food gets from manufacturers to our plates. It made me really think about all the different ways in which food travels through the supply chain. So is this, say, obviously... People want to save money, and uh, when you're uncertain about the economy, this is something you think more about. But does it, you think, give us a sign that maybe how people shop is changing too? Is there something underlying this that's more than just about saving money? Oh, absolutely. And I think um, particularly with younger people, there is a real interest in preventing food waste, right? So you have a lot of waste warriors that are at these stores. I think you and I probably get a certain amount of uh, satisfaction from running an efficient household. You know, any good chef will tell you, you, you know, take the vegetables peelings and make a stock out of them and that sort of thing. This is uh, 
that ethos, but applied to the grocery store, right? So a lot of people who go to these stores or a lot of the newer people are folks who are want to participate in a world in which we reduce food waste, which then keeps food out of the landfill, which then makes less carbon into the air, which hopefully will help us stop climate change. So that line of thinking is, I think, alive and well in a lot of the salvage stores. Kim, thank you so much. Uh, The story of salvage grocery stores. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. Always happy to be on Milk Street. That was New York Times food correspondent Kim Severson. Her article is called Dented, Dated, Discontinued. At the salvage grocery, it's called A Deal. And now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, I have a theory recently that people who are in one area of the arts oftentimes cross over and do something else in the arts. So, for example, Jacques Pepin does the most amazing paintings of mostly chickens, I myself have taken up watercolors, and I'm not bad. I'm not saying I'm a genius, but I'm pretty good. What do you think about that? If you're sort of creative as a cook, that it sort of translates into other areas. We'll find out that Jacques Pepin has been depressed all his life because he really wanted to be a painter. (laughs) I mean, for me, it's music because I've played music all my life. See, there you go. I've had a couple bands, et cetera. Okay. But I think the question is, why are we desperate or love doing something else in the arts? I guess we're not fulfilled with what we do? Or maybe we just have excess artistic energy? We've got the art gene. We're Um, hardwired art. That's what I think. Okay, that's a good theory. Let's take us some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is George. Hi, George. Where are you calling from? Uh, Just outside of Dallas, Texas. How can we help you today? I upgraded my kitchen a few years ago, and my neighborhood does not have natural gas. So I wanted a gas cooktop, but I had to get one that would be converted to propane. And I've just never really made friends with the thing. You know, I I know how to cook the things. I know how to cook on it. But when I have a new recipe and it says cook on medium, I just don't have any point of reference to find those settings. Well, I've been stuck with electric everywhere for years. But I'll tell you one thing that's true about electric regardless is you have to get used to it. Um, Propane, I believe, has a higher BTU rating than gas, and it depends on the size of the holes that it comes out, how it comes out. And Well, let me ask you this. When you do cook it over what you think is medium, does it seem to cook too fast or does it seem to cook too slow or sometimes one and sometimes the other? Sometimes one and sometimes the other. Darn. Well, here is something to consider which I've done with my electric stove, because with an electric stove, a burner doesn't heat up quickly and it doesn't cool down quickly. So I've taken to using two burners. I go from one to the other. But really, at the end of the day, the advice is just take notes, copious notes when you make a recipe about what the temperature was. It was too much or too little, and then you'll know the next time to do it differently. But let's see what Chris has to say. Let's be honest. Recipes say medium-low, medium, medium-high, and it's all nonsense because it depends on the pan you're using. It depends on your cooktop. It depends on who wrote the recipe. Right. You know, in England, they have gas stops. You know, it's like four stops. They don't have, like, all these different things. Like, setting the oven at 335 is crazy. 
So what I would do is figure out what you're cooking. If you're doing onions, for example, it'll say cook on medium for eight to 10 minutes until translucent. Well, you don't, medium's pointless. You you sort of know how to cook onions, right? Right. I would ignore, and I always do when a recipe says medium or low, I, I just ignore that. I just know there's like low heat, sort of medium heat and high heat. That's all I really know. And then I constantly adjust it. So I would take it as a very rough rule. And, you know, it sounds like you know how to cook. Look what's in the pan. Last thing I would say is use your ears because you can tell a lot about whether the temperature's right. Like when onions are cooking properly, they don't sound angry, right? They sound sort of gentle. And the same thing with sautéing meat or anything else. So use your eyes, use your ears, use less heat than you think you need. That's a good rule. We do agree on that one. Yeah, because you'll get into less trouble more slowly. And don't worry about what the recipe says. Look what they're asking you to do. You know, brown the meat for eight minutes. Okay, well, then you sort of know where it should be. So one last thing I'll leave you with is that I I once did a test of induction stovetops versus gas, and I figured out induction and gas both took 13 minutes. Yeah, which, which surprised me. So could we come up with a test? to figure out, like you take a cup of water and put it in a three-quart saucepan, how long does it take to boil? That might be a useful gauge. At least you know the ballpark you're in. That would be a great starting point, you know, some sort of empirical standard. Because yes. I'm, I'm fine when a recipe says cook it over medium for six minutes until translucent and beginning right. to brown. Right. But when a, a recipe from not quite as good of a source just says cook it on right. medium for six minutes. Then you don't know. Then, no, you don't know what exactly. you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll try to come up with a rule, and we'll let you know. Anything else, Sarah? Are you? No, no, I agree. I was going to say look for the or until, but you're right. Bad recipes don't give you the or until. It looks blip, you know, six minutes or until. Right. Also, maybe just try to work with cookbooks that give you the or Sarah, until. Sarah Moulton's or until cookbook. Yes, coming to a there you go. For you. Right. George, thank you. Excellent question. Really excellent uh-huh. question. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Great Radio. Sarah and I are ready to solve your culinary problems and mysteries. Please give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Marla, and I'm calling from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? I just want to say, first of all, I love your show. I started a baking business, and I listen to it every single time I bake. And I try to bake macarons in bulk, but I always have trouble baking them and having them come out the same each time. And I don't know what I'm doing. You're trying to bake macarons (laughs) in large batches that come out the same every time. Um, (laughs) What kind of flour are you using? These are almond macarons? Almond flour. Yeah. Yeah, almond flour and powdered sugar, and I'm yep. blending them together and sifting them. I'll give you a few personal tips, but Food 52 actually has a on their website. They have a bunch of professional tips about doing this, which I would check out. Okay. I think one thing that for me, when you're dealing with egg whites, make sure that you don't overbeat them before you add the hot sugar syrup. I think people okay. overbeat their whites, and when you do that, it's a disaster. I got this tip from a baker in London, actually, Claire Patak, and she showed me how to do it. She really, oh, yeah. she yeah. under underbeats them. And so I would definitely underbeat them because they're much easier to incorporate into dry ingredients later. And there was something else on that Food 52 site, I remember, about continuing to fold the mixture 
long after you've incorporated all the ingredients. Normally, I would not suggest doing that, but that's one of okay. the tips they had on their site. The other key is the humidity and the temperature and other things in the mm-hmm. in your bake shop. Sarah? Yeah, I agree with what Chris said. I just was going to ask you, whose recipe are you using? Oh, I don't know. I've used so many, and I've tried so many different ones, and I've tried making it so many times, and some days it comes out great, and some days they collapse, and I like to make them in bulk to use them as, like, cake toppers and everything, and then I'm just wasting ingredients because they didn't turn out right. So. Yeah, that is such a bummer. I know one really highly regarded source is the book Bouchon Bakery, Mm-hmm. B-O-U-C-H-A-N. Oh, yeah. You might want to check out their recipe. What oven temperature are you using? I think 300 in just the regular oven. And after they're baked, do you turn the oven off and let them sit in there for a while? You just take them right out? Yeah, I let them sit in there for about an hour after and right. kind of crack the oven a little bit, almost right. like I'm making like meringue. You have your ovens calibrated all the time? I mean, that's an obvious Yeah, question. I have a thermometer, yeah. Yeah, okay. Sounds like an egg white problem. Maybe I'll try the under whipping thing because I don't think I've tried that yet. And I remember listening when she was on your show before, yeah. Claire Patak. So maybe I'll try that. Of all the baking tips I've ever gotten, I think the two tips are under beat your egg whites. It always includes sugar with the egg whites, of course. And two, underfold for cakes the egg okay. whites into the or the batter into the dry ingredients. However, in this case, in this case, one of the tips was overfold. So I'm not really sure why that is, but if you don't want something to collapse, maybe that's a good idea. But I would check out the Food 52 website. Yeah, and the Bouchon Bakery recipe. Yeah. Okay, awesome. And also Stella Parks. Oh, yeah. It's Stella Parks I'd always trust. Okay, awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Marla. Thanks, Marla. This is Mill Street Radio. Up next, the best food of Puerto Rico with Ileana Masonette. That's right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables. Crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. 
my other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It's time for my interview with writer Ileana Maisonette. Her debut book is Diasporican, a Puerto Rican cookbook. Just a note, we recorded this interview before Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico in late September 2022. Ileana, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. So your grandparents come to Sacramento from Puerto Rico in 1956. I know your grandmother was a great cook, uh, but what about your mother? Is she a great cook too? No. My mom, to this day... My mom does not like cooking. It is a a chore for her. She doesn't really cook for herself. Most of the stuff that she made were kind of like these semi-homemade quick recipes, you know, that included like Campbell's cream of mushroom. Oh, like the chicken with the cream of mushroom soup in the book. Which my grandma would never use in a million years. (laughs) So your grandmother's cooking, and you talk about this in the book, but her cooking was from her time in Puerto Rico Did it change over time, or she had her recipes and that's what she cooked? Yeah, her Puerto Rican recipes never really evolved. The only things that really evolved were kind of like maybe how to make them. So like when we make pasteles, which is traditional to use banana leaves to wrap, you know, when she came, 
you know, there was nowhere to, to buy that sort of thing. So she started using foil. And, and these are sort of like tamales, I guess, a little bit? Yeah. Basically, instead of using corn as the masa, we use tubers like, you know, platanos right. and yautia and stuff. But all of her recipes are very old-fashioned, like, you know, because she left before there was really much of, like, an American influence that kind of, like, took hold, you know, like the use of ketchup and stuff like that. This is really an interesting point. I just want to talk about her for a moment. You you talk about how there's an influx of convenience foods. And so uh, it's an interesting concept of over time, sort of the the classic recipes get lost. How How do you think about that? In other words, your grandmother's food is the real Puerto Rican food. What's going on today is related to it, but not as good. I mean, how, how do you think about the evolution of food? Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of it that I don't really understand. And I don't think that a lot of Puerto Ricans, they also don't understand. But Puerto Ricans are what I call a spirited bunch. So even though they don't understand it, they're going to defend it. They're going to die on that hill regardless if they're right or wrong. Mm. <laughs> um, so like, you know, when we're talking like mofongo, right. mofongo originally would be served in a bowl with like chicken broth or something like that or, or a tomato-based sauce because it has a tendency to be dry. Well, now the quick fix is to just slap on mayo ketchup and there are people that will, if you don't serve it like that, they will get super angry and say, you know, oh, that's not traditional. And it's like, dude, mofongo was around way before f-ing ketchup. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you're sitting here defending ketchup as being traditional right. when we literally probably have only been using ketchup in Puerto Rico for maybe like the last 30 years, maybe? Like, is that really, can you really call that traditional? So for you, just to define this, you say, which I think is really interesting, this is not a Puerto Rican cookbook. It's sort of a diasporan cookbook. So what what's the difference and what do you mean by that? Well, like the other day, somebody on TikTok asked me, you know, oh, is there is this book going to be made in English? Because, you know, I don't speak Spanish. And it's like this book is entirely in English. This is why this book is for you. It's for us. You know, like we're 5.5 Puerto Ricans 5.5 million here in the States. That's more than in Puerto Rico right now, for better or worse. Right. And so there are, you know, a ton of Puerto Ricans that live in the States who've never been, you know, to the island. But that doesn't mean that they still don't long or yearn for their, you know, their mother's land or their grandmother's land. And they might not speak Spanish. So there are like, there are personalities on social media, like Puerto Rican personalities that do a lot of cooking and stuff. But I always say that those Puerto Rican cooks, personalities on social media, they're the Puerto Ricans for other Puerto Ricans. I'm the Puerto Rican for everybody else. <laughs> I'm the Puerto Rican for the world, for everybody. Uh, there's a few recipes here that are really interesting. First of all, you, you talk about a quintessential Puerto Rican guava barbecue sauce. That sounds, I don't know why I've never had that, but that sounds like <laughs> a big a big improvement on regular barbecue <laughs> sauce. So, so we, what, what's in it? How do you make it? So if you go to any of like the fritura shacks in Louisa, they have, you know, pinchos, right? And it's just grilled mm-hmm. chicken on a stick right. and skewers that they grill over, you know, coals or whatever. And the quintessential sauce that they usually use is the guava barbecue sauce. Now, today, most of them just use a cheap barbecue prepackaged sauce like Kraft and then just add guava paste to it. I don't do that, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. to each his own. 
the way that I do it is, you know, I just start with like tomato sauce, a little bit of ketchup, whatever, and then I add my guava paste to it. And because guava paste has a tendency just to be so sweet, which I really don't enjoy, kind of that cloying sweetness, mm-hmm. I add a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of fish sauce, and a little bit of lemon mm. to mine. Now, my mom mm. had always, she never made her own barbecue sauce, but she would buy the best one she can, and she would always add sliced lemon to her barbecue sauce. Always. As long as I can remember. And for the longest time, I hated it. I was like, why are you adding this freaking lemon in here? I hate it. And now, I just can't see any other way of doing it. Is, is that your definition of growing up? Is that <laughs> Now we know you're you're a full adult. Figured it out. Maybe. Maybe it's like a rites of passage. Like, you too will yeah. learn to enjoy the lemon. <laughs> You do have your likes and dislikes, uh, clearly. Uh, flan, you know, I don't like flan. I don't like flan. Q dry heaves. I like yeah. <laughs> Most flans tend to be wiggly. Look, but you say in a bad way. What's That's what I love about flan. I like no. wiggly. Why, how come you don't like wiggly? It's wiggly and slippery. You you had a bad experience with flan or something at some point? No, you know? I mean, oh. any experience with flan is a bad experience. It's too slippery. <laughs> it is literally just sloop. It just kind of <laughs> goes down your throat without you really necessarily having to chew. And that's not a good thing for me. But, you know, the way that Puerto Ricans do it, they make gets with the flan, you know, which is more, it has like the good things about flan, which is kind of like the caramel, which is almost like a, like a burnt caramel almost, which I enjoy. And it has more of like a smooth cheesecake texture kind of. Well, I'll try it. But I, I like, I like wiggly and slippery. I'm sorry. I guess we just. (laughs) Agree to disagree. Um, so the next time I visit Puerto Rico, where should I go? How would I think about finding, you know, the kinds of foods that you really get excited about? So, you know, in Guavate, there's a Ruta de Lechon. So there's a whole, like, not neighborhood, there's a whole area that just specializes in lechon. So you kind of have, you know, a lot of places to choose from, you know, on what could be your favorite place. And you can just hop, you know. And there's like a Ruta de um, Longanisa in the mountains, like just this route of like various restaurants that just kind of specialize in dishes that uh, include Longanisa. You know, there's I wrote about, you know, this man named Nando who he's really old. I think he's like in his almost in his 90s and he's still, you know, making his sausage, smoking his sausage right there. And so don't just stick to San Juan. Like first day, go to freaking... Uh, guavate and eat pork second day go to the mountains you know you may want to get a driver because some of those roads are super crazy go and have you know try a bunch of different longanisa places and make your way to the west side and go and have those fresh oysters puerto rico's not known for its oysters and it should be you talked about rice in the book right about how to cook rice Mm -hmm. and you you talked about the two to one ratio or which is just complete nonsense i believe right yeah i totally agree and in in some cases one-to-one is what you yeah. should use. Could you just talk about that? Because I think that's important. Um, I remember in culinary school, everybody was afraid to make rice. Everybody would make pasta every single day. Pasta, pasta, pasta. Because nobody knew how to make rice. And even our teachers would say, you know, oh, it's just two to one. It's like, dude, what? You know, and me, <laughs> me coming from like a rice culture where I've eaten rice all my life, like I have a body built by rice. I was like, there's just no way that is like, no, that's not how this goes down. You know, like rice really depends on the type of rice you're using, where the rice comes from. 
Sometimes it depends on the weather. You know, I don't want to seem crazy, but some people have said it depends on how you talk to the rice. If you talk to your rice like you talk to your plants, like, you know, better rice will come out. Like, wait, I- wait, 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 wait. Okay, we're going <laughs> to stop you there. So you're talking to your rice and that changes how you of course. cook it? <laughs> I'm like, we're going to do good. We're going to do great. You're going to be a winner. And like, you know, some people have that technique where they dip their finger into the rice, yeah, right. right? And it comes to that first line finger and that means it's going to come out perfect. Puerto Ricans, when they make rice, but they'll stick the spoon in the middle of the pot. And if the spoon is standing up by itself, that means it'll come out perfect. Huh. I have yet to make that happen. That does not work for me. I have to measure. So what's your view over the next 10 years in Puerto Rico, not the diaspora here, but you talk about, you know, you talked about ketchup, you talked about the the low quality of some supermarket ingredients, et cetera. Do you think there's going to be a a resurgence like there has been in many other places of rediscovering what they've lost? Or is it just going to keep trending into more sort of convenience? Um, Well, there already has been several resurgences. It's just that there's a lot of having to go back to square one because of, you know, Puerto Rico's financial crisis or because of natural disasters that keep occurring, you know? Like, there are some people there that are doing really great work that are growing their own food and starting small farms and teaching people about, reteaching people about the ingredients. I mean, there's a company called Puerto Rico Produce, where they work with small farmers all across the island and they will deliver those products directly to your door, no matter where you are. That service has been a great contributor to people getting access back to the things that they might remember from when they were small or maybe, you know, just from hearing their parents having access to that they never even have seen because they live in a city where their only access is supermarkets like Walmart. Ileana, it's been a pleasure. Uh, It's also been a lot of fun. We should do this again. Thank you. Thank you. That was Ileana Maisonette in an interview we recorded before Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico. Ileana Maisonette is the author of the new book, Diaspora Rican, a Puerto Rican cookbook. You know, in today's food world, the issue is often authenticity. Ileana points out that ketchup as an ingredient is not traditional when making mofongo, but then again, Sunday gravy is hardly a classic Italian dish. In the old country, meat was expensive, and Sunday gravy, a pot full of spare rib sausage and stew meat, was really not an option. And what about fettuccine alfredo? The original recipe never called for cream. So traveling the world, one hopes to find the authentic version of, say, pad thai or falafel, But inevitably, every village and every household has their own recipe. Authentic is in the eye of the beholder. This means that we need to hold two opposing ideas at the same time. Authenticity matters, but recipes change over time. So if you want to put ketchup in mofongo, please be my guest. But please try the original. You might be pleasantly surprised. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with Sam Four about this week's recipe, Agua Chile Negro. Sam, how are you? Well, as always, Chris. How about yourself? Uh, well, as sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but I was very well in February because I went to Puerto Vallarta. And uh, friends of mine took me to a bar on the beach, cafe. Uh, had had a big drink. Uh, <laughs> but we also had Agua Chile Negro, which is 
essentially ceviche, a shrimp ceviche, but instead of just lime juice. They have some other ingredients, including Worcestershire sauce, which gives it a very dark, interesting, almost fermented flavor to it. So I was really taken by this, and it wasn't just the alcohol. I really liked it. <laughs> uh, and, and I found Worcestershire sauce and other similar soy sauce in other dishes with seafood. So this was an eye-opener for me, but it's one of the more interesting recipes I've come across. So what's kind of brilliant about this is that this regional sauce is like almost kind of inky, and that's not really something that you would expect on a shrimp dish, you know, by the beach. But it's got this kind of complex heat to it. It's not just that it has the soy and the Worcestershire. It's even got a little bit of Maggie, which is kind of a tie-in with South Asian flavors. It is also one of those things in this recipe that I enjoy that, shrimp is not completely acid cooked. We're going to poach the shrimp in this recipe. So we're, we're taking a bunch of smaller shrimp and we're only going to cook that shrimp until it's just starting to curl. And so once I have it to that point of just being barely poached, I am taking it and putting it into lime juice while it's a little bit warm and then tossing it into the fridge until it is completely chilled down. Now, this gives the lime juice some time to create some bright, beautiful acidity in this dish. For the sauce, while the shrimp is chilling down, we've blended up the Worcestershire, the Maggie, the soy, with some charred chilies and garlic. And the puree just ends up adding so much flavor and so much difference from a traditional sort of, you know, just lime juice and a couple of spices ceviche. And... As we serve it, we can add, you know, sliced onions and cucumbers and tomatoes and avocados and have all that freshness. But the big thing is just how punchy that sauce is. Yeah, you, you know what I love is when people have a dish comprised of one or two things, like this, you know, barely cooked shrimp and the agua chili sauce. Um, and then you put a bunch of fresh things on top to make you feel virtuous. <laughs> Tomato, avocado, cucumber. Yeah, this is uh, this is fresh vegetable. It's a salad. It's a salad. Sam, thank you. Agua Chili Negro is a, a different way, and I might even say a better way of doing ceviche. Thank you. Enjoy. You can get the recipe for Agua Chili Negro at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik asked the question, what do we do when our favorite places close? That's up after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will answer a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Tim from Burlington, Vermont. Excellent. A Vermonter. Vermonters yes. always ask the best questions. They do. Think? They're just the best, yeah. So, okay, go ahead. I'm currently in Vermont, but I grew up in Rhode Island. And in Rhode Island, I could find this just excellent Italian bread at the local bakeries, or all the mom and pop bakeries. And it doesn't really usually have a specific name. It's just like called the family loaf, or it's just the bread that they have at the bakery. Usually it's just like, do you want this large one or the small one? So I tried to recreate it by baking it myself, but I've been completely unable to. Uh, I can't find recipes. I usually end up with something that's more like a ciabatta or a sourdough, and I can't get the fine texture, crusty loaf that they just have perfected. I know the bread you're talking about. It's not a loaf that has a lot of flavor to it, though. It has a great crust, a thin crust on the outside, right, in a... Tight crumb. In a tight, light crumb, right. Correct, yes. It's a very mild flavor. Right, it's mild. What recipes did you try and where did you find them? Mostly looked online and I found, you know, kind of like rustic loaf breads and some of like baguette type recipes. Yeah, those are different. And though. they just, yeah, they come out too coarse. They're too airy. And, and of course, uh, anything with a sourdough recipe ends up being yeah, sour and, and too strong a flavor. How you Google 
makes a big difference. If you Google classic Italian bread, did you try that? Rustic's not going to do it. To me, Heavy. I think really crusty yeah. and then airy in the center. Classic Italian bread would be what I would look for. I often go to Serious Eats when I'm looking for recipes. I like their website a lot. I would definitely start there. But I know exactly what you want. The problems were these were too rustic. They were sourdough. They were different kinds of flours. Correct. They were yeah. too heavy, right? I mean, it's closer really to white sandwich bread than it is right. to a baguette. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. So like white sandwich bread, it has a tight crumb. But unlike white sandwich bread, it has slightly more of a crust. And the ones in the supermarket are squishy. They kind of get the texture right, but they don't yeah. quite get the flavor right or the crust right, for sure. The crust is usually too soft. Yeah. Well, good for you, because that's kind of a loaf that nobody takes seriously anymore. When it's done right, it is very good. Yeah, and it's great so. for sopping up all those gravies. It makes excellent French toast the next morning. With, and yeah, bread pudding. Yes, yeah, so. also yeah, great for Yeah, because it's bread a good pudding. absorber. Well, if you find out, let us know, because we'll yeah. post it on the website. All right. Tim, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Pam. How are you? Fine, thanks. I have a recipe from the January-February 2021 issue my husband made, it's the beef and potato curry with lemongrass and coconut. Mm -hmm. And we loved it and been debating what would be a good accompaniment to it if we didn't want to have it with rice. Um, I think you probably want something fresh with that, a carrot salad or a curried carrot salad. We have quite a few carrot salads. Probably you could use a cucumber salad of some kind. We have a number of those. I think something fresh and simple. You know, those are just a few, Sarah. You know, I'm interested. You said you don't want to serve it with rice. Were you looking to serve it with another starch, even though there's potatoes in there? That's exactly why we didn't want to do it with the rice was because of the starch and the potatoes. I agree with Chris, you know, because when you make curry with coconut milk, it's rather rich and slightly sweet. So it's nice to have something fresh like cucumbers or carrots. But I was also going to say another counterpart to something that's sweet and a little heavy is something that's bitter, like broccoli rob would be another thought. And you could just saute it with garlic or just, you know, blanch it and saute it in oil, and that would be a nice counterpart. Or do what I do, which is I've totally given up on side dishes. I don't do side dishes anymore. (laughs) No, I mean, look, this is a dish... It has beef and potato and lemongrass and coconut. It has a lot going on. Right. So what I would do is forget entirely about a side. I just serve that and then make a really interesting salad that has maybe some bitter greens in it, right? Yeah. Frise in it or something or escarole or whatever. Something that fennel's really great in the salad. So have a heartier salad. Yeah. And that becomes your side. It's also a good palate cleanser after the curry. So I, 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 I would just dump the side. (laughs) Okay. I love that idea of doing a salad. I know with other curries in the past, we tend to, um, we grow a lot of greens and we will cook those in large batches and freeze them and then have them as a side item kind of in place of a salad. And it's been surprising that we do enjoy that with a lot of different curries. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense, again, because they're bitter. Well, especially if you have a dish that's multi-textural and lots of flavors Mm -hmm. going on, you don't need to add something else. Less is more. Right. 
Okay, great. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, thank I you. Thanks help. for calling. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Recently, we received a call from Scott Hankins, who had found himself in a particularly sticky situation. My nonstick skillet does not have a lid, and I've always used the lid to my enamel-coated cast iron Dutch oven. The last time I did this, it mm. got so stuck. I was going to say, and this it, is not going to end well. No, mm. no, it has not ended well. <laughs> so I've heated up the pan slowly. I've tried putting it in the freezer. Right. Nothing's really worked so far. <laughs> in short order, inventive lid removal solutions came pouring in from our listeners. Hello, I heard uh, a bit on the radio today about um, a pan lid being stuck on top of a pan, presumably because of a significant vacuum issue. And I had one additional idea for you, which is, uh, I don't know if you could get your hands on some kind of uh, vacuum container. Um, I don't know if a local lab might have something like that, but um, seems like uh, that might work. Take a bag of ice, duct tape it around so that the ice only sits on the Dutch oven lid and the aluminum will move before the cast iron and it'll pop open. You've got to fill the frying pan up with water and boil it and keep it going. Turn the uh, chilled pan and lid over upside down so the lid is downward, pour the hot water onto the pan. That might expand the pan enough to release the lid and break the vacuum. You can unscrew the handle from the lid and that will release the vacuum. Ultimately, Scott chose a different solution. After fighting with his stuck lid, he left the entire pan in his workshop closet and promptly forgot about it. When he rediscovered it during a move, he made attempts at drilling through the lid before surrendering the pan to its final resting place, the garbage bin. Well, at least with your help, he'll be better prepared the next time this happens. And thanks to everyone who called. We'd love to hear your solutions for both ordinary and extraordinary kitchen problems. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Let's see what Adam Gopnik is thinking about this week. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. How are you? I'm good. I've been a little philosophical of late, and that's why I called. Yeah, just the, just the guy you want to talk to. Well, I am what I think Jaquees, and as you like it, would say philosophical melancholic, um, because my very favorite coffee shop in all of New York City suddenly and surprisingly closed just the other day. The one, the one I went to with you? The one I took you to, the new Amity oh. Coffee Shop, which had been there for 42 years. I went for, I don't know, a thousandth breakfast, and there was a sign in the window saying, after 42 years, we have decided to hmm. close, and that was it. It was finished. And what made it so strange, actually, Chris, was that at that same time, another local institution in my Manhattan neighborhood, Wankel's Hardware, suddenly decided to close as well. Wankel's was one of the strangest and most uh, eccentrically visual stores in all of New York because they had a beautiful window displays, at Christmas especially, of vacuum cleaners and sinks and toilet seats <laughs> neatly wreathed with holly and tinsel, uh, just to show it off. It had also been there for almost 45 or 50 years, so it was a double blow That's to horrible. our sense of continuity. It was truly terrible, and it was deeply depressing. Well, I, I do have a theory, though. i just interject for a second. I love hardware stores, the small ones. Yes. 
And I, I think you could track the decline of Western civilization by the decline of hardware stores, <laughs> but because they really said something about community because they were the heart and soul for me of a town. Um, Chris, you are so on my wavelength because <laughs> that's exactly where I'm going. <laughs> Except to add to it that the coffee shop or the diner, as it's often called outside uh, New York City, right. is the hardware store of, of gastronomy. Yeah. Uh, it's the yeah. place that people come together. And what struck me in losing the coffee shop is that, of course, it's been replaced organically. But what replaces coffee shops now in New York City or any city in America? Chain coffee shops. They were replaced by cafes, right? Places where you get espresso with some variety of steamed something or other or chilled something or other. And they don't have food. They tend to have a certain number of pre-chilled and then sometimes right. microwaved less than goodies. Um, but a cafe usually replaces a coffee shop. And here's the secret about the coffee shop. The key thing about the New York City coffee shop was that it served bad coffee. It was one of the few places where you still got bad coffee, old-fashioned, percolated right. coffee that had stood on a warming plate for the better part of two days. So there's a kind of built-in trade-off there, and it goes on all around the country, actually. I was in Columbus, Ohio, and I stumbled on a wonderful diner that had somehow survived all the changes in the world, and it had great breakfasts and terrible coffee. It's a kind of marriage. So what replaces the Greek coffee shop in New York is the standardized cafe. And if you think about it, Chris, what replaces the hardware store generically? Well, it's, e it's either Amazon yes. or it's Home Depot. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I put it slightly different. I'd say what replaces the hardware store is the software store. Hmm. And the problem is exactly, Chris, I think what you were saying a moment ago, right, is that the coffee shop and the hardware store, which we have lost our best representative of in the past couple of weeks, is that they're cross-class and cross-kind cultural spaces, if I may put it mm. that way. Everybody used to come to the New Amity. Right. Rich people from Fifth Avenue and middle-class people from Third Avenue and working people. Uh, when I posted my melancholic social media notice about it, I got responses from a huge range of people. Th those are the kinds of places, in the same way that Wankel's Hardware Store was a place that welcomed everybody, not in a self-conscious way, but just naturally. Everybody needs scrambled eggs, and everybody needs a working drill. Everybody wants good rice pudding, and everybody needs toggle bolts. And that sense of commonality, as I say, of that kind of cross-class commonality, is exactly what we are losing in our ever more polarized and siloized existence. If I can be still more solemn for one bare half minute... <laughs> One of the things democracy depends on are those kinds of blending places. And that, I think, makes the loss of the new Amity and the loss of Wankel's hardware something more than just a neighborhood pain. It makes it a national crisis. Totally agree. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a small hardware store near my place in Vermont. It's the classic little village hardware store, and they have everything, I mean, literally. And you go in, and it's family. The, the guy yep. who works there lives across the street from me. And it's a very personal experience. You know, from the, the hardware store to the box store is a long way culturally. And it's, it's, a, it's a race to the impersonal. It's a race to anonymity is the way I'd put it. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't just the rice pudding. It was exactly that blending and mixing that went on in the new Amity that we will sorely miss. Well, you could also think about it this way. It was about the 
the waitress, you know, who's pouring that second cup of coffee. Yeah. It was that interaction which you no longer really have. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the people at Home Depot are very nice, but it's it's not the same as my little hardware store. No, when we walked in last Christmas, our kids had been away at university, and we went with the kids for just an ordinary lunch of club sandwiches and milkshakes and the things they loved. And it was like being in a Frank Capra movie because all right. of the wonderful waiters who had known them since they were little came over and said, oh, look at them. How wonderful. It's so great to see you all. Yeah. It was genuinely like the good parts of It's a Wonderful Life because it is a wonderful life. And though however much we may criticize those things for nostalgia and sentimentality, that representation of the richness of uh, common shared life is real and it is moving and we are losing it. So to try to end on a positive note, (laughs) (laughs) is there anything that comes out of this that gives you a sense of hope for humanity? Fortunately, I got their recipe for rice pudding before they closed, not knowing that they would close. (laughs) I don't know if that's comfort, (laughs) but at least it's consolation. Well, I'll offer one thing. At least we don't have to drink bad coffee. We, that, that, that's a small <laughs> consolation. The coffee's better. The cultural experience is worse. Well said. Adam, kind of a, a dark note, but I, I think one that we both agree with. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. That's it for today. We have over 200 episodes of Milk Street Radio available on MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can download our recipes, watch our TV show, or explore our online store for everything from coffee sugars to Chinese cleavers. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and cooking questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Zinzibaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.